0: through 30 and chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 by faith the people crossed the red sea as on dry land but the egyptians when they attempted to do the same were drowned by faith the walls of jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days therefore the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted.
1: Good morning. Good morning. I'm always thankful to uh, be a part of a church that would allow anybody to get up and play like that. So you're graceful. Thank you. Um, Um, This is not Henny Youngman. Um, um. (laughs) Reminds me of a time when I was, um, you know, as a younger person, I used to be part of the agency who would, um, Hire me to go entertain uh, senior citizens in their senior citizen home, and, and we had uh, um, uh, Mr. 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 Tillis was uh, was terminally ill, and then they said, "Carl, can you go?" And so, you know, I used to try to tap a little bit, throw a few jokes, do a little singing, if you can imagine, and just do some playing. And I said, "Mr. Tillis, you know, man, I hope you really get better." And He looked at me and said, "You too." <laughs> um, We should emphasize not Negro history, but the Negro in history. What we need is not a history of selected races, of nations, but the history of the world, void of national bias, void of hate, void of religious prejudice. There should be no indulgence in undue eulogy for the Negro. The case of the Negro is well taken care of when it is shown how they have influenced the development of civilization. Carter G. Woodson, the author of The Miseducation of the Negro, and the person largely responsible for Negro History Week, which ultimately became Black History Month. It's important to note that, I think, that, and it bears repeating, that Carter Woodson said that one should not emphasize Negro history, but the Negro in history. And that's a reminder that's worth repeating, I think. It's, um, he felt as though the achievements and contributions of people of color were and are foundational in the building and ongoing nurturing of the nation. And he felt that it was so painfully obvious to see if anyone cared to. Of course, the recognition of achievements and contributions are very important to everyone. They, they are to me. Uh, but not only to people of color but to every american everyone you know? As as histories they're not interconnected they don't exist in a vacuum they're for everyone but i do feel as though carter woodson and others like him like w du bois they were anticipating a good faith response from america they felt that if they presented enough documentation enough evidence enough hard empirical data the facts and the contributions and achievements of black Americans historically, then America would say, Yeah, we'll be open arms. This is great. We love this stuff. This is wonderful, so interconnected, so multicultural, so diverse. This is a great melting pot of achievement, of contribution, of fairness, of equity across all nationalities. And based upon this information that you've shown us, we will treat all citizens, especially the black ones with liberty and justice for all." Well, they were operating on the assumption that most would connect the dots and piece together why these achievements were achievements in the first place, and would give them some context. But unfortunately, and this is where kind of, I think, sometimes the, the black history achievement and contribution narrative could potentially fall apart, but not due to people like uh, Carter G. Woodson, but due to the relentless nature of dominant cultural norms and cultural institutions and mythologies that, at their core, don't value people equally. In other words, Black History Month and other attempts at national equity and recognition and peacemaking inevitably finds itself confronting the big bad wolf of white supremacy. Now, when I say something like white supremacy, that's controversial. Now, I don't mean like burning crosses or hooded white sheets or Klan rallies or sticking dogs on people and spraying water holders and marches in Selma. Instead, when I say white supremacy, I mean a set of chosen governing principles and practices that exist in a way that society kind of chooses to organize itself and prioritize itself. These principles and practices, they kind of permeate every aspect of social, economic, educational, political, and spiritual life. These principles determine where you lived, what schools you went to, who you allowed to marry, what jobs you had, how much you would make, what church you would attend, determine if you could vote or not vote, it was a constant reminder of one's station in life, if you're black. Professor Eddie Glaude Jr. at Princeton, uh, he calls this uh, these principles the value gap. I'm going to steal that term. The value gap says in America, black people are simply valued less than others, and that there has been a case. That's been a case since the founding of the nation, from the enslaved being three fifths of a human being the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1790, which only allowed people who were white to become citizens, and lasted up to 65 when people of color were allowed to vote. And, I, and mind you, I was born in 67, so that's almost <laughs> in my lifetime. And it's just almost like when every time there's, a, there's a, a progress made culturally and socially for equity, the value gap always undermines that and distorts the, and gives the that advancement a limited scope. So when I look at Black History Month, if one doesn't contextualize achievements and contributions, which I'm in favor of, if one doesn't do that, then white supremacy will do it for you. If you leave the negative impression that unless black people have performed achievements based upon certain criteria, that they couldn't really contribute. Now we know that's not true, because one need not achieve anything, and still be part of a legacy of faith. Amen. Amen. So Black History, like Brother Dennis was saying, like all our readers were saying, they, they did great readings, by the way, and great uh, great testimonies. It's complex. It's nuanced. It's it's multicultural. It's non-monolithic, and at its core, it's comprised of resiliency, in the face of of opposition freedom in the face of normalized oppression and the faith in the messiah that transcends horrors of the middle passage slave master religion ritual torture colonization jim crow book banning and it transcends what the future and current holds now of course one cannot talk about black history without talking about the mass. The great poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, he wrote these words. He says, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts, we smile. We sing, but oh, the clay is vile. Beneath our feet, the long, the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. Historically, the mask it represented a kind of duplicity, a subversive way that people of color felt could feel one way, but in the face of oppression and white supremacy, would communicate to those around them something totally different. You know what what I mean? And for good reason. I mean, you know, during enslavement, it was illegal for the enslaved to learn how to read. So if you if you knew how to read and write. You had to act like you couldn't, amen. Or you might get the lash, or you might get killed, or you might get sold, or something. The historical legacy of the mask lingers on. In modern times, the mask is worn to make others feel comfortable. And can I tell you a secret? Straight up, it's just between us, I'm wearing the mask right now. this thing on? As I stand here in the pulpit, and as I try to navigate how to reflect on black history and life in Jesus without appearing too angry, or like an activist, or or secular, or or whatever the, the thing is, I still wear the mask. Paul Dunbar's mask, like the 20th century's first cousin, Tony Morrison's The White Gaze, are part of the complexity and nuance of, of black history, and they kind of add the humanity of flesh. And you've got to put on that humanity of flesh to, to all the achievements and contribution talk, which, I, again, I'm, I'm in favor of those things. I do think they're limited, but I'm in favor of them. You, you feel me? You feel me, Brother Dennis? Where you at? Right? You, feel, you know, we talked about that earlier. The followers of Jesus in the book of Hebrews were suffering intense persecution and they needed to be encouraged. They were reminded of the exploits of faith of those who came before them, people like Gideon, Rahab, Moses. They were still living by faith when they died, but they didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. They were flogged, persecuted chained in shackles, put to death by the sword, sawed in two, and they were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Do You get that us and they kind of a, a triangulation there? Historically, African-Americans were also encouraged by the faith of those same brothers and sisters who came before. They saw their story as their story. Amen? And even though through struggles and persecution, they understood that getting easily tangled up in sin, the anger and bitterness and cruelty of white supremacy and the value gap is a downward spiral. And they understood that as, they, as followers of the Messiah, they and we live a bold witness. We witness in other ways. And we don't ignore those things. We don't ignore white supremacy. We, we don't ignore the value gap. We don't ignore the harm. We don't disremember history. We don't become historically illiterate when it's convenient. We don't pass laws to burn books. or We call out the sin. We call out historical injustice. We name it for what it is. And we do the work of justice to be bold witnesses for truth and the beauty and the inclusion and the equity of the Messiah. And why? Why we, why? why? did we do it? Why did they do it? Because we are empowered by the author and finisher of our faith, the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Some of our brothers and sisters of old who weren't allowed to read and write. Some couldn't read or write. Some didn't know Genesis from Revelation. But they knew somebody. Somebody who could come, who said, come unto me, all you were heavy laden and hurting and persecuted, and I will give you what? Rest. Some couldn't, couldn't do anything, couldn't read, but they knew a person. So when we talk about history and black history and any kind of history, particularly black history, let us add to the achievement and contribution narrative the recognition of resilience and faith and make those contributions and achievements significant. Give them some context. You know, I want to know why so-and-so invented the light bulb or whatever. What were the situations that allowed them to do that? What did they have to endure for that? Churches. Why were other churches started, black churches? Why? Because they couldn't worship together with other people, right? Everything has a context. That context is important, particularly in communities of faith. Our brothers and sisters of old who came before us were encouraged by the faith of those who came before and by the great cloud of witnesses who always imagined. And, and I've always kind of seen this cloud of witnesses as, as sort of is cheering, cheering them on. And now, those ancestral brothers and sisters are now part of that cloud of witnesses, right? They're cheering us on. And, I, and this is where I have to sort of personalize and localize the cloud of witnesses, because the history, achievements, contextualizing, understanding the place of white supremacy, understanding the the value gap, how that comes down to me, when I think of brother Arthur James, long time member, dear friend, Sax player, he played the band in Cuba. Before he joined the Cloud of Witnesses, he would say me, he would tell me, brother Carl, because you know he, he had a he actually gave me his sax, and he would try to play. And, you know he had his you know couldn't play as much. He said you know, brother Carl, keep playing, serve the Lord, play for the Lord. Sister Kitty Allen, longtime member, mentor, friend, before she became a mentor, before an ancestor, she was always a mentor, before she joined the Cloud of Witnesses. Do we have a picture of Kitty Allen up there somewhere? No, we don't. Okay. Some of y'all may may know Kitty Allen. She um, She would always tell me and my wife even if people at church and in the world act funky towards you, Jesus ain't funky. Keep rolling. And if you knew Miss Kitty, that's Miss Kitty. Yeah, she took a swig on something. Tea. Sister Garnett will love it, longtime member spiritual grandmother, dear friend, present ancestor, a cloud of witnesses. She told me and my wife before Joshua and River were born, she said, um, talking about the church, she would, no. I don't love everybody, but I try. Promise me. Christine will always try. It's tough, man. Brother John Rainbow. Long-time member, friend, mentor. Current ancestor. And part of the cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on as we pray for Brother Tom, for Paul, Sister Melanie. She's doing right now. Right now, as we speak. Brother John told me, he says, he called me Whippersnapper. He says, Whippersnapper, come here. He says, at the church, at my church, Manhattan church, I was once called the N-word. But I want you Always use the L word, love. My brother and partner in crime, Brother Reggie. Reggie Jackson. You may look and find, but you won't find a purer heart than Brother Jackson. Brother pulled me through the community hope. Wasn't the other way around, brother Jackson's friend, brother, father, husband, member of the church here, current ancestor. He would say, "Hey, you ready? Ready for what? Ready for the community hope?" I say, "No, I'm tired. I'd say, Get ready, man. Get ready." depend on us. So I got ready. Some of us don't remember them. Some of them are. Some of them do. Some of you don't. Some of the younger folk don't, uh, probably. But hopefully, maybe you you may know me, and remember me. Well um, I forgot my tissue here. Um, and and they they all charged me, you know. Um before they became ancestors and before they joined the cloud of witnesses who are cheering us on, praying for us right now, they charged me to say, hey, don't give up. The church is a community of faith, paid for, for the blood of the Lord. Stay in it. Stay involved. And don't give up. So I charge you Don't give up.